You're listening to episode 15 with Arlen Hamilton, Emily Hayward, and Linda Rotenberg. Welcome everyone to The Multiplier Effect, an Endeavor NWA podcast. What kept me going through the rejection of the capital and the personal circumstances was the original reason that I started, the understanding and conviction that what I was building needed to exist. And we've got organizations like Endeavor, which supports entrepreneurs starting a $100 million fund to invest in companies. Regionally, all of us, I really have to work together to highlight the heartland. Welcome back, everyone, to an all-new episode of The Multiplier Effect. We are so excited to be sharing a recording of our conversation from the You Love Innovation Future Pathfinders series. This conversation is filled with wisdom and guidance for those interested in entrepreneurship in Northwest Arkansas and beyond. Finding NWA, powered by the Northwest Arkansas Council, has been hosting this series for the past few months as they explore points of passion in our community, covering topics from art, to culinary experiences, to the outdoors, music, and this last week, entrepreneurship. They have included local and national experts in each field that are inspiring community and conversation during these challenging times. And as part of the You Love Innovation Conversation, our managing director, Janem Arken, was joined by the founder of Backstage Capital, Arlen Hamilton, who we mentioned in episode three with Ernest Sweat, as he was the moderator for her inspirational chat at the NWA Tech Summit last year, along with a few of our favorites from the Endeavor Network, co-founder of Red Antler, Emily Hayward, and co-founder and CEO of Endeavor Global, Linda Rotenberg. We had so much fun co-hosting this session and couldn't wait to share with our listeners here. So with that, I'll pass the mic to Janem to kick off the interview. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Janem Arkan, and I am the Managing Director of Endeavor Northwest Arkansas. I am so excited to moderate the fourth event in the Northwest Arkansas Council's You Love Speaker Series. This 10-part series focuses on points of passion. We explore topics across art, music, culture, the great outdoors, culinary experiences, and my favorite topic, entrepreneurship in Northwest Arkansas, the heartland, and beyond. In today's discussion, You Love Innovation, Future Pathfinders and Startup Culture focuses on our speakers' experiences in scaling their companies and the companies that they support. I am thrilled to have an amazing panel of renowned entrepreneurs. In fact, all of these women are themselves founders, CEOs, innovators, investors, and authors. And I want to shout out to their book titles. Uh, you can see Arlen's. Linda's is crazy as a compliment, the power of zigging when everyone else zags. Arlen's is it's about damn time. And Emily's, I think yours just came out, obsessed building a brand people love from day one. Okay, so the fun part, let's introduce you to our speakers. First, we have Linda Rotenberg joining us. As co-founder and CEO of Endeavor, Linda has led the global entrepreneurship movement since 1997. Endeavor has offices spanning the world in 37 markets with over 500 global team members and an international mentor network that rigorously identifies, selects, and scales the fastest growing companies in underserved markets around the world. Please also welcome Emily Hayward. Emily is the co-founder and chief brand officer at Red Antler, the leading brand company for startups and new ventures. Emily works closely with founders to develop purposeful, strategic visions for their startups and has led branding efforts for top companies, you may have heard of a few of these, Casper, Allbirds, Betterment, Pros, to name some. And last, but certainly not least, Arlen Hamilton is here. Arlen is the founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital, a venture capital firm dedicated to minimizing funding disparities in tech by investing in high potential founders who are people of color, 
women, and part of the LGBTQ community. She's also co-founder of Backstage Studio, which launched a four-city accelerator program in 2018. I was lucky enough to listen in on a fireside chat with Arlen at the Northwest Northwest Arkansas Tech Summit in 2019, and I'm a huge supporter of her work. Let's start with Arlen. Arlen, I'm quoting your turn of phrase on this, but 90 plus percent of venture capital dollars gets allocated to straight white men. The implication being that the other 10% is split unequally, by the way, between all the other demographics of society. How do those underserved founders who may have the added hurdle of trying to operate in markets away from the coasts get investor attention during a pandemic as they try to raise money? I I think you do it the same way I I would suggest before the pandemic, which is focus on the company. I know that's uh, easier said than done because I've been there and I'm still there. You know, I'm uh, I'm a a founder myself raising a bootstrapped venture capital firm. It really is about, in my opinion, it's about focusing so much on your company, building the value um, so that you don't have to give away more of the equity, more of the value, more of the control of your company er- too early or at a valuation that is premature. When COVID hit, a lot of people came to me directly to ask me directly for capital, but to say, how do I raise capital right now so we, c- so we can kind of save our ship? My first question was like, let's break down what you really need what you really need right now versus what you think you need or versus what, you know, other people may be saying you need. What do you really need? And that's not always the correct way of doing it. There are circumstances where you do have more access to capital. You want to shore it up and kind of put it away for a rainy day. But we're, this is a, a, a torrential downpour. So so that's that's like the first go-to for me is to think of recalibrate recalculate and repurpose what you actually need before going out in a desperate attempt to raise so that you have more control as you're raising or if you decide to raise at all. Linda, do you have any thoughts on this? I thought that was a great answer. And we help entrepreneurs, not only from underserved markets in the U.S., but as you said, from Latin America and Africa and the Middle East and and Southeast Asia and Europe, which, you know, had up until recently, no access to capital, right? And I think that there, the only things I would add to, I agree with everything Arlen said, including the fact that now that people are shifting from growth to profitability, this desire to bootstrap, keep more of your company, focus on the product market fit makes more sense. But I will say just one other thing, which is Silicon Valley, one of the reasons why it's over 90%, I think, that goes to straight white men is that they were so used to people coming to them on Sand Hill Road, right? And if anyone came to them who was not living on, you know, in their Bay Area where they could bike, they said, sorry, not for me. Well, Zoom has changed everything. Because now if people are not meeting face to face, that argument goes away. So one of the things we've been seeing is entrepreneurs from all over the country and all over the world getting actually more access, getting a foot in the door, because now people can no longer have the excuse well, if you're not right next to me, I can't fund you because even if someone is next door in Brooklyn, I'm sheltering in place, I can't even see them. Emily, I want to go to that theme of, uh, of companies being global. Borders don't seem to matter anymore. Whether it's climate change or a viral tweet or a pandemic, how should companies think about their brand, even if they operate locally in communities like Northwest Arkansas, in a time where everything is global? And how do you think about your brand in that context? I think that it's important to keep in mind the difference between 
between branding and marketing. And if we think of branding as who you are at the core, the, your purpose, why your company exists, the problem that you're solving, your reason for being, um, and your real identity, you know, I don't see a reason why that can't be applied across the globe, like to your point, right? I think we're learning more than ever that a lot more unites us than divides us, right? But at the same time, I also think it would be a mistake to ignore real cultural differences, you know, even within the United States, let alone sort of as you start to go into other countries. So I think as you start to think about, you know, sort of how your brand shows up and your marketing message and the exact way that you want to communicate to your audience, that's where I do think you need to keep in mind, you know, a great degree of nuance and make sure that you're sort of approaching that audience in a way that makes sense for them, that kind of meets them where they are, taps into cultural trends, cultural movements, things that may not be the same in one place as they are in another. But ideally your brand is built in a way that you have that flex and you're able to not change your message, but tailor it depending on where you're showing up and sort of what's going on around you at that time. Linda, I want to go to you because I had the privilege of seeing you have a conversation with your husband, Bruce Feiler, who's also an award-winning author. And he said something that really stayed with me um, which was that life is not linear and we are not going back to a world, a post, a pre-COVID world anymore. What can entrepreneurs do to get to the other side of these major transitions happening around the world? And what are some examples of endeavor entrepreneurs who've managed these life quakes, as Bruce calls them? And everyone should check out his book, Life is in the Transitions. Life is in the Transitions is out now. And it's true. And Bruce wrote this book pre-COVID, right? So the idea was that we are all going through disruptions and life quakes, as you said. Some are voluntary, some are involuntary, some are personal. This one we're all going through happens to be a collective involuntary transition, which are the rarest. But I think that one of the things about life not being linear is that I always say chaos favors the entrepreneurs. I think the less agile, larger businesses are used to winning in the linear age. And I think they've been caught you know, uh, short-sighted. They're not doing digital transformations. They're not as, as able to be agile and adapt to the new situations. This is a time, if you're an entrepreneur, you should be used to pivoting and, and, and seeing the opportunities. We've had so many companies. We have a company, Figs, in the U.S. that was started to change uh, medical apparel because why should it all be that boring, you know, blue suit? So Figs has this beautiful, stylish, gray suit. Well, guess what? COVID hits, they change to PPE. So they change and provide masks and PPE to all the hospitals. And the other thing I'll say is the workforce is obviously changing. And obviously now the ability to work from home, I think for people in smaller markets, this is a real competitive advantage they never have, which is you now have the ability to have a geographically dispersed workplace and, and not only uh, think about the talent in your local market. That's a really good point. And I think so relevant to Northwest Arkansas. But Arlen, I want to ask you, as a founder and somebody who has done a major pivot in her life, you have experienced food insecurity. There were times where you, there was a time period in your life where you're living at the airport before you raised your first fund. I'd love for you to talk to us about your mindset during those transitions in your life. What kept you going? What were lessons learned? What do you think people can do who are facing these major transitions happening to really push forward? So I'm 39 now and 
for most of my adult life before 35 had housing insecurity, which, you know, took on the form of many, many things. In my 20s, it was cuter. It was like, oh, I'm just going to couch surf. (laughs) And in my 30s, it became more dire because it was like, oh, this isn't getting better. It, it, It had gotten pretty, pretty stark at like 33 to 35. It wasn't fun. I had started working on backstage the idea probably at 31-ish, 2011-ish, 12. And as it, as it is today, the form that it is today, it had years and years and years of nobody investing and nobody being interested in a serious way, only thinking it could be a nonprofit or it was too crazy or it wasn't necessary, all those things. Um, but what kept me going ultimately through the rejection of the capital and the resources and the personal circumstances was the original reason that I started, was the understanding and conviction that what I was building needed to exist. It was, wow, if I can make this happen, if I can pull this off, there's something big that will happen, you know, as a result. I could just feel it in a way that I had never felt anything, any calling. People had told me, you're going to feel a calling one day, and I had never felt it. And as long as I felt that and understood these founders exist, and I just want to spotlight them, and then I want to invest in them and hopefully have a piece of the company, you know, and, and be on that journey with them. And I knew that the one true thing was that if I stopped, it would not work. And so I just tried to stay stay the course. I just love what Arlen just said. And I think that description of feeling a calling, I look for that in all of the entrepreneurs who we choose to work with. For me to get excited about throwing my creative passion behind an entrepreneur, I want to feel like they had no choice but to start this business. You're all incredibly successful people and, and women, but you've gotten a lot of no's in your career, right? I'd love each of you to just take a second and talk about how many no's you've gotten. Arlen, you, you raised capital for, you mentioned trying to raise capital for many years. You mm-hmm. must have gotten, how many no's did you get? Today or you mean in the, in the past? In the, oh. in the beginning, yeah. Before yeah, no, before. today, I mean today. How many no's have I gotten this morning? Just today. Um, <laughs> I, get, I get no's all the time. It used to be one yes for every hundred, and now it's probably one yes for every 20. And so that's that's definitely better odds. Linda, what about you? When you were first starting Endeavor? Hey, I don't get no's. I get first answers that are not the acceptable answer. <laughs> but I always tell people, well, thank you. That's your first answer. What's your better answer? And 20 times later, then occasionally I get then the, 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 the right answer, which is the yes. I sort of feel like you make your own fate. You've just got to be assu- assuming that the first answer is not going to be the one you want to hear. So then you don't get hurt or disappointed. So a lot of times people will take, well, don't take no for an answer as don't take no from the same person for an answer. I say, don't take no for what you're doing for an answer. You can always follow up with them later on and see if some, something new has changed in your life that would change their mind. Going into something and knowing that not everybody's going to get you and not everybody's going to be on board, but you're willing to get that door slammed in your face over and over and over again from multiple people, you're going to eventually find someone who understands you. I think for me, it was more like a resounding the world telling us no because nobody agreed with our vision for our business. You know, when we started Red Antler, our vision was that pre-launch companies should start thinking about brand. We were living in a time where the ethos was, you know, the lean startup. It was like, get out there, test your way to success, iterate, like don't, you know, brand is something you worry about, like when you're big enough to worry about it. And we, I think, were probably the first creative services company that was like, no, you can actually start thinking about this before you even launch. 
And everybody just told us that was ridiculous. You know, startups don't have money. You know, how can you possibly think about your brand before you're even out in the world? I think we really had to have strength in our own convictions and yes, find a few clients who believed in our mission and, and prove everyone wrong, you know, and sort of wait for the world to catch up. Like, I think we stopped relying on yeses and just went out and did it ourselves. And then, you know, it sort of proved out over time. And now I think we're in a very different position and the startup landscape has gotten so much more competitive and people now realize that brand actually can be an advantage, you know, the sooner you start baking it into how you think about your business. So that goes back to the original question about like what to do right now with COVID. If you focus on your company and not begging, but almost almost begging people for capital, your, the value of your company goes up in most in a lot of cases. And so then you have people coming to you and understanding it a little bit more. Emily, if you had just kept just banging down doors instead of just getting into the work of what you were doing, you might just be still there. 100% and really our focus in the first years of our business was just do the best work that we can possibly do and create success for our clients and like prove them all wrong. Um, So I'm I'm completely with you, Arlen. I want to stay with you, Emily, for a quick second, because I think we're in, obviously we're in unprecedented times between a global pandemic and in the U.S., Black Lives Matter movement, which actually has taken hold globally as well. I am not alone in saying that I've gotten an email blast on both topics from every single business I have ever interacted with in any context as a consumer, (laughs) right? It's exhausting. It's exhausting because I think at this point, um, brands and entrepreneurs, uh, you know, are, are dealing with these enormous issues and it feels inauthentic. So what should companies, what should entrepreneurs be doing to be more than merely reactionary at this point in time? So I actually think we need to separate these two topics because I understand they happen back to back, but I think that a lot of the emails that got sent out at the start of the pandemic just didn't need to be sent at all. Like I think a lot of those companies could have just like let us all like reel from this and then figure out their, their role in it. Whereas I can say with confidence, um, I don't think there's a company in America that doesn't need to look inward in terms of their role in, you know, anti-racism and systemic racism. So in that case, I don't think you can stay silent, but I think your actions need to outweigh your words. Like for me, that's always the measure. It's like, you, you do have to say something because this is an incredibly important topic and you need to signal that you're on the right side of history here, but you need to be doing more than you say. And I think that if every company sort of used that as a measure before posting on Instagram, before sending an email, we'd be a lot further along in an incredibly long overdue movement. I agree with the the, the separation of the two, the two different things. It w- was interesting that all of a sudden there's all these woke brands. I don't know if they were napping or what was happening before, but I took very close notice of the brands that I spend money on or that I refer or both who didn't say something early. You know, none of it I thought was, oh, they didn't say anything for a week because they were trying to be thoughtful. I I don't buy that because it just, it, what do you say when someone in, you know, a friend of yours or someone in your family, passes away you 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 say something i mean there is this one one person who's kind of a popular figure and i just had recently become very enamored with his style and his company and what he does and i thought i thought you know 
how powerful would this white man with such an audience, you know, be, how powerful would it be for him to say something? I can't wait to see what he says, even if it's, I don't know what to say. And he says nothing and he hasn't said anything since. It changed things for me. I don't have any more plans to spend any more money there. He's human. So I'm not going to say, you know, he's dead. I haven't canceled him. I know some, I have some friends who are like in DNI and these corporations and have told me back channels, like our company didn't say anything I begged them to say something sooner, but they sat on it because they didn't want to get into the fray of it. And that you just know straight up that that's just, that's trash. If you don't know what to say, say that. You know, each one of us as individuals and as brands and as companies can do our authentic part. And I do think that in, 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 in our case, what we said is, look, I think we're a global organization. We have actually at our core shown the diversity of entrepreneurs and who is, is, is fundable. We've got to do even more than that. We have to not only promote the black and female founders here in the US, the underserved founders that we found around the world, but look at who's providing the capital as well. That's why Arlen, it's so great to hear your, your story. I don't like when it feels rote, when it feels like, okay, we're going to give money to the X cause and then that's, it's it. Is it it's as if it's satisfied things. I think this is a moment where obviously everybody had to say something, but you've got to do more. I want to touch on this really quickly. You're all female you know, leaders, CEOs, co-founders. Linda, you said this and I love how you phrased it is that, you know, in some ways, female founders are, and leaders are supposed to be superhuman, right? Do it all. And you really want to focus on being more human and less super. And I'd love for you guys to talk about moments where you realize showing vulnerability as an investor or a leader has been a better use of your time. This happened because uh, in 2008, right when Endeavor had secured $10 million to go from Latin America and South Africa, truly global. And we were supposed to go to 25 countries by 2015. I had three-year-old identical twins at the time. They're now 15. Mm-hmm. And my husband, Bruce, and you mentioned the author, uh, was diagnosed with a very aggressive, very rare bone cancer. Um, and I had to tell everyone that I wasn't getting on any planes. I was going him to chemotherapy and his 16 and a half hour you know, surgery. And then when I wasn't there, I had to deal with the kids. And so when I came back to work after about a year of his treatment, and thank goodness he, you know, he survived it, but I was terrified because I had always believed that especially as a female leader, especially where I'm dealing in all these emerging markets where there are not many women to begin with, right? I had to be even tougher, even more like, you know, don't let them see you sweat or cry. But I'm not a good poker player. People could see sort of that I was upset. And and so when they asked me about how Bruce and the girls were doing, I broke down and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to freak out the team. And instead, these millennial women came up to me and they said, you know what, Linda, we'd always like wanted to follow you because you were super human in our mind. And I realized this was not a compliment. This was like, you were totally unapproachable and, and inaccessible. And they're like, but now that you've, you've shown us who you really are and you're authentic, we'll, we'll, we'll go anywhere with you. And I, I, that's when I sort of said, oh, I'd made the mistake of trying to be superhuman when it's less super, more human. And I'll just quickly add, I think this is building on what Linda was saying. I think that as a leader, your success all boils down to your ability to retain amazing talent and have other people want to work with you. And if you never show vulnerability, then how is your team going to feel comfortable showing vulnerability to you? And if they're not willing to do that, they're going to end up either breaking or leaving. You know, to me, it's about how to foster an environment where people are willing to come to you if they don't know something, if they're having a problem, if they're feeling stressed. And the only way to do that is by 
demonstrating that behavior. I have lots of questions I can keep asking you guys, but I can see that there, the audience chat is blowing up. So um, I'll just go through a couple of their questions. Uh, Arlen, what has been the most satisfying moment since starting your business? There have been many just because I get to work with so many companies, so many founders. If I had to put it in one, it's been so many, but if I had to put one, it was, it was reaching 100 companies invested in, and it was doing so before I said I would. So I said in, from 2013, 14, 15, I said, I'm going to invest in 100 companies led by underrepresented founders at the time, underrepresented founders by 2020. And I was told I was crazy. I was laughed out of rooms. And I reached 100 companies by May of 2018. If I wanted to sort of mic drop and walk away and sort of let this be a case study of what is possible in under, with underrepresented, underestimated founders, I could. And so everything after that has not been about proving anything to anyone. It's been about just um, scaling that, just doing more, having more impact, catalyzing more people. And so it was, it was almost like a gift to me that I, I don't have to chase this thing anymore. Now we're, I think we're approaching 140 companies. We'll have our fifth year anniversary in September. And now I'm an LP and I'm an investor in, in 12 other funds. To go from sleeping at the airport to now in five years, it's just, um, I'm very proud of it. And I, I don't like to pretend that I'm not. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. <laughs> so Emily, this one's to you. Um, what is the next big business trend you see or trend in business that you're seeing? You know, there was definitely an explosion a couple years ago of like direct to consumer, right? A lot of consumer goods that were, you know, cutting out the middlemen and selling directly to people. And I think what we're seeing now, and this started before the pandemic, but it's certainly been accelerated is people are actually like thinking even bigger about what industries can be disrupted. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies that are sort of, you know, building on the fact that the institutions that we're supposed to be able to rely on, that are supposed to be kind of like the backbone, the fabric of our society, have really let us down, right? So think about, you know, fintech, healthcare, these kind of like fundamental, you know, supposedly like the safety nets that sort of keep us all afloat, keep us healthy, keep us financially sound, really aren't doing their job. Times of crisis are times of innovation. And if one positive thing is going to come out of all of this, I think that we're going to see a lot of sort of industries that feel so entrenched, we can't even imagine them changing, um, being shaken up in a good way. I'll, I'll add to this because I think the U.S. is late to the game on this. Yeah. And I think that I'm, a, you know, the, the boys in the hoodies we were talking about, they were all building their dog walking app or whatever they were doing. Like when the entrepreneurs we've been seeing in Brazil and Nigeria and uh, Indonesia and Dubai, they've been doing fintech and health tech and ag tech and ed tech because they had to leapfrog institutions that no one assumed were going to take place. I think we had the fallacy, Emily, I totally agree with you, that we had these stable institutions. So I think that these digital first platforms are solving basic needs at scale. That's, that's that the problem when you have all of the people writing these checks who are so myopic in their life experiences. They don't understand that something is not this down and out, oh, you know, flies around people's faces. If you talk about Africa, you're talking about an enormous opportunity that uh, the understatement of the year, and not, not to cut you off, but I mean, it's... it's no, and that's why I think the line. line. What I'm excited about is when we talk about 
oh, you know, 20 years ago when it ever started, there weren't even words in Spanish or Portuguese or Bahasa Indonesian or Arabic and Turkish for entrepreneur. And now what we're seeing, Darlin's point is, you have these banking, these fintech platforms coming out of Nigeria, Kenya, Brazil, Indonesia, that are some of the most sophisticated in the world. And I feel like they're leapfrogging us in some ways because they've dealt with these problems that we assumed were being taken care of that didn't. And so I think it's going to be very interesting in the next five years. We're going to see these health tech and edtech platforms, I think, started outside the U.S. and being copycat imported here. And it's a very interesting dynamic change. I love that perspective. Arlen, you had this interesting concept of gatekeepers versus key makers. And I think you're all key makers, which I love the way you phrase that, which is, you know, it's, it's so much, it's at some point in our careers, right? We're, we're coming up against these gatekeepers and we have to make sure that we get past this gate, but you all act as key makers and you all act with entrepreneurs along their journey. So you see companies go through the whole trajectory because you're all in it so early on, you're working with these companies for so long. So I'd love it if you can highlight a company that you've worked with, spent time with, a success story in, in each of your networks and, and talk a little bit about that. 140 companies. So by choosing one, I'm not deselecting or whatever others, right? But one that comes to mind because I'm working, I just work, working with them right now on something is a company called Akash. And they're a telecom company that essentially is sending satellites into space to have, you know, uh, coverage, broadband coverage. In a few years, it will be covering most of the of the world. And the the different, the kind of key differentiator is that it can do it with fewer satellites, so therefore cheaper. So right now, their competitor that most people know is Starlinks, which is associated with SpaceX. But what takes SpaceX, Starlinks? 12,000 satellites to accomplish will take 12 satellites to accomplish. And the reason they're able to do this is because of a technology using diamonds that the founder, Felix, created 16 years ago. So he's a black man. And I met him in 2017 with my partner, Christy Pitts, who works at Backstage. And we, we committed within 15 minutes of meeting him. He had raised less than a million dollars for this. He's now raised um, 17 and a half million. The reason it's sort of like not just your everyday story is because he doesn't put his face on his website because he understands that that might send certain vendors and certain customers away. That's not right. That's not okay. That, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. We're trying to, th this shouldn't even be a question, you know, this shouldn't even be something that gets brought up. But look out for that, Akash. I'll do two quickly because they're different stories, but one, Nevzad Adin and Melia Demish in Turkey started a food delivery company called Yemeksepita. No one understood technology at all in Turkey. We ended up um, helping them raise uh, venture financing. Anyway, it sold to Delivery Hero for almost $600 million, was the largest internet exit in Turkey, and yet there are no employee stock option plans in Turkey. They're not allowed. So none of the employees had equity. Well, Nevzat and Melly, the founders, took $27 million of their earnings and was almost about half of what they earned and, and had kept ledgers of every single employee and what they would have gotten had they had options. And yeah. And now That's we awesome. so I always see entrepreneurs as changing culture. Um, the other quick story, a woman in, um, named Veronica um, in, in uh, the foothills of, of, of Spain, grew up in a manufacturing town, de um, decided that there was no, let's talk about digital transformation. She's using robotics and AI to do automating um, processes. Her 
clients include Tesla and Apple. She's still in this small rural town. She has um, a program for STEM for women that is one of the top in all of Europe. And now she just joined our board in Spain because we said you have to do more. You have to tell your story. Now you have to reinvest in more founders out there. Incredible. So if you if you look at what's happening in Tesla, the back end is being done by this woman in this remote part of Spain. I would love to highlight one of my favorite founders. Um, her name is Lauren Chan, and she launched a luxury plus size fashion brand called Henning. Um, and the reason I want to highlight her is because customer. <laughs> customer. Oh, great, good. Um, she, to me, had an amazing response at the start of the pandemic when I think a lot of brands were scrambling, like, is it okay to market ourselves right now? Like, do we just need to sort of cease all business activity? And her point was that she fought so hard to get a seat at, a ta at the table and to increase representation of plus-size women, especially in the luxury fashion space. And she said, wouldn't it be a shame if we come out the other side of this and the only thing that's left are all the traditional brands that like only go up to a size 12 and you know aren't offering plus sizes. She's like, we fought to be here and we have to fight to stay here. And I thought that was an incredible argument for why new disruptive businesses should absolutely be marketing right now and absolutely be looking to grow right now because the last thing we'd want is that we come out the other side of this and all that's left are like the big players who were able to just sort of like ride this out versus like the small businesses that you know, may need to work a little harder right now, but those are the businesses that we ultimately want to see in the world. All of you are right now based on the coast. One thing that's emerged because of this coronavirus is the necessity and even upside of having flexible and virtual work environments, which may benefit, you know, the flyover states that, uh, that we're in, that I'm in. And the impact of redistributing that density can be enormous for entrepreneurs, for economies, and even major political ramifications. What do you think the world looks like in five years in terms of where and how people work and interact? And what does that mean for a place like Northwest Arkansas? I mean, I think from, in terms of our business, you know, we certainly, our minds have been opened. You know, I think that we believed what a lot of people used to believe, that like the magic happens when we're all under one roof. I think our perspective has shifted. I think we're doing incredible work. I think we've seen actually some benefits to the team in having way more flexibility. We have some people who are making the personal choice to move out of the city and they're valued team members and we're keeping them on board. And I'm excited to see where this goes next and how we can take some of these lessons forward with us because I think it's actually much healthier for the family. I think it's healthier for the country. And I think we're all being proven wrong about our biases and assumptions. One of my favorite newer entrepreneurs, um, Tayo Ovieso Paga, which is one of the top um, Nigerian fintech companies, his next market is Mexico, which makes total sense to me, having been in, you know, in Lagos and in Mexico City. But everyone's like, no, wait a minute, why aren't you going to Ghana next? He's like, no, 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 I'm going to Mexico. Like this. And so I think that this entire flattening of the world and understanding that um, it's not about borders, it's about where problems and solutions are, are similar is now open. I think, as I said, entrepreneurs have always realized this. I think in five years, you know, I've, I've noticed some people who said, who have families, um, one in particular I'm thinking of is a woman who has four children all under the age of six, I think, something like that. And her, she and her husband usually manage that with um, additional childcare. And so she's immediately at home and working. I just think that work-life balance could actually happen um, for some people now. I think 
it could go in a very interesting way that is not so um, rigid where everybody's back at their office because we can be. Right. Right. That's all we have time for. Thank you all so much for joining us. I could ask you like 50 questions and 10 more hours if you would let me, <laughs> but um, thank you to our listeners. And there were a lot more questions to come through and I hope we can all chat and see each other in person again soon. Thank you everyone. Thanks to everyone who tuned into our episode today. We thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with this extremely insightful group of women that have impacted entrepreneurs around the world and have inspired our local NWA community as well. Be sure to stay tuned for the rest of the You Love Speaker Series through the end of August by visiting findingnwa.org. And as always, you can find out more about this episode on our website at endeavornwa.org. See you next week.